Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. 1 Kings chapters 17 through 19 tonight. Elijah and covenant renewal. So maybe uh, the first week... The first two weeks, really, looking at Solomon, the rise and the glory of Solomon's kingdom, and those opening chapters, chapters 1 through 5, and then the decline of Solomon's kingdom, uh, and the construction of the temple, rather, and then the decline of Solomon's kingdom. We kind of had a longer storyline through those first three weeks, uh, focused really on one character, Solomon, the temple, and the, the destruction of the, not the destruction, the construction of the temple. And then last week, you might have felt like it was uh, 60 miles an hour through all the kings because we went through quite a few kings of Israel and Judah and uh, how many of them died and how long they they reigned. And remember, the author was doing that on purpose. The author is listing through those kings, how they, uh, you know, killed each other to ascend the throne and how their son came to the throne and they reigned for so many years. They died and they wrestled with their fathers and then another king was raised up. And so the author's point through all of that was for us to see the quick turnover of kings, that this hope that the one king was coming, the promised king that would sit on David's throne forever, that would reign in righteousness and justice forever, uh, the point the author is trying to make with each passing king is this one's not it. And so you have that kind of time after time, the pattern of the, how they rose, how they did what was evil, how they did what was good, and then eventually they died. So last week was a little quicker pace in the narrative. This week, we are going to slow down with the narrative. So 1 Kings 17 through 19 slows the story down. We're going to have really one story here, one story uh, with a few main characters. So we're not going to have the the litany of kings, this king and that king and this king and that king. We're really focusing on one king, one prophet, and one problem. Uh, we're centered on one prophet, namely Elijah, though at the end of uh, chapter 19, we're introduced to his uh, successor, Elisha. Elijah, you know, a little bit of Hebrew front and back, you can see that's a combination of two words, Eli and Yah, and so that would be uh, God is the Lord, or the Lord is God. So Elohim, Yahweh, kind of a combination of those with the name Elijah. And that's significant that he's named Elijah. Yahweh is the Lord, or Yahweh is God. God is Yahweh, however you want to say it. That's significant. Keep that in mind. Because this story is focused on one false god, namely Baal, or Baal, which just means Lord. It means Lord. It's another name for Lord, Baal. And we're centered on one wicked king. We were introduced to him last week at the end of chapter 17, King Ahab. King Ahab. So uh, as as opposed to going through, you know, one king and one king and one king, we're going to slow down one prophet, one king, one major problem, which is Baal worship. We were introduced that last week in chapter 16 as well. 1 Kings 17 through 19, the big picture shows that the God of Israel, Yahweh, not Baal, is the true God, and that he accomplishes his purposes amid the changing seasons of life. So if that's your one takeaway thematic sentence for the whole story we're going to look at tonight, God alone is God. Yahweh alone is the one true God, and he is sovereign and will accomplish his purpose and his will no matter what life holds, okay? We're going to see that in Elijah's life, and we're also going to see some lessons for our own lives there. As we come into chapter 17, we see a familiar story, and that is that God has raised up this prophet Elijah to prophesy, and this is interesting, not just to prophesy about a drought that's coming. 
Elijah isn't just saying a drought is coming. He prophesies a drought, but the word seems to indicate that God uses Elijah to cause the drought. In fact, if you look at uh, chapter 17, uh, verse 1, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years. Watch this. Except by my word. Except by my word. So that seems to indicate that God has given Elijah this anointing, this temporary power, this authority to withhold the rain and consequently to bring the rain if he so chooses at Elijah's word, which is, of course, derivative of the Lord's word. It's not Elijah's power, it's God's, but he has vested Elijah with this power and with this authority. And we know that this drought comes because, first of all, Elijah is confronting Ahab, and Ahab's main problem, chapter 16, verse 32, Ahab's main problem was that he had erected an altar for Baal, the house of Baal, in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. So like all the other kings had been falling into idolatry, building high places, building the Asherah, which are just poles, like monuments to false gods, Ahab takes it a step further. And remember that pattern we began to see, that Omri was worse than all the kings before him. Well, then Ahab comes, and Ahab is worse than all the other kings before him. And now we really slow down with Ahab and see just how wicked and how evil he was because of this idolatry that he imports into Israel, going so far as to even build a temple for Baal in Samaria. So this was God's judgment, the drought was, for Baal worship. And God raises up Elijah to withhold the rain by his word as a judgment, not just against Ahab, but against the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom over which uh, Ahab was king. Now, anybody take a stab at why a drought was an appropriate judgment for this kind of idolatry? Anybody have a study Bible with some notes? Any give you some indication about why this is so important? Yes, Jerry Ann. Did you have an, an idea about why this is an appropriate? Oh, you've got notes. That's what you're saying. Yeah, if you got notes, look down there and tell me if, if you can see why the drought was such an appropriate judgment. Brittany, what you got? All right, yeah, so Baal was the god of all kinds of fertility, from reproductive fertility to agricultural fertility. He was the god of the storms, the god of the rain. And so much like, you know, in the book of Exodus, how God kind of targets the false gods of Egypt with each plague that he brings. If you never looked at that, it's very interesting how God goes after what the Egyptians consider to be gods with every plague that he brings down, proving a point. Yahweh alone is God over the Nile, over the frogs, over the light and the, 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 the sun, over even life itself with the Passover. And the same thing's being said here. You think Baal is the god of rain, you think he's the god of fertility, you think he's the god of the storms, but really there's only one true living god who is over all that. His name's Yahweh, Elijah is his prophet, and here's how God is going to prove it. Because only at his word is there going to be any rain whatsoever. So pray to Baal all you want. Sacrifice to Baal, go into your false altars and your false temples, but nothing's going to happen until my prophet, the prophet of Yahweh, the prophet, the man of God, until he says there will be rain. And so this is an appropriate judgment because it targets what they thought Baal was God over, namely the rain and fertility. So Elijah has been given a fair amount of authority. I mean, at his word, it will not rain. At his word, it will rain again whenever God so chooses. But we see in this story that even while he's given this great authority, Elijah's ministry is lonely. Elijah's ministry is lonely. Um, in verse 3 of chapter 17, the Lord says to Elijah, and you might note that in verse 2, it's, it's the word of the Lord that comes to Elijah. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself. Hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. So really going out into the wilderness to hide himself. 
and by the word of the Lord. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. Ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up. Why? Because there's a drought, there's no rain, and Elijah himself is suffering the consequences of that. So in the remaining verses, verses 8 through the end, really, of that chapter, Elijah goes and stays with a widow in the land of Zarephath and her son. So you would think that at the beginning of this, Elijah is raised up as this great, mighty, strong prophet of God, given so much authority and power, commanding even the weather itself by the power of God that he's given him to withhold rain and to cause rain. And man, this is going to be a big story of strength and power and might. But the very next thing you see God tell Elijah to do is to flee into the wilderness and to hide. And I'm going to cause the ravens to feed you, and you're going to drink from this brook until even that brook dries up. And you're forced to go live with a Gentile widow and her son. It's not really the story of a great mighty prophet if we were going to write it, is it? The, the, the opening chapter of the book is that I have the power to control the rain. But now I'm going to go live by myself <laughs> in the wilderness and eat bread that birds bring me and drink water from a brook until it dries up and then I'm going to be at the mercy of this Gentile widow and her son until the Lord tells me otherwise. All of that, remember all of that by word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came and told Elijah to do these things. But even in this season of drought and in this season of loneliness and in this season of uncertainty as he's staying with this widow and her son, we see God show his provision and his power to Elijah. Now, I've already read one portion. We see Elijah's, or God's provision for Elijah by sending the ravens to feed him. Bread and meat in the morning, bread and meat in the evening. And then he gives him water there by the brook. But you know this miracle as Elijah asks for a morsel of bread in verse 11. And in verse 12, the widow says, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering up a couple sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. But was she fully expecting? I only have this flour which is made from grain and to have grain you have to have water from the crops, right? And she knows this is the end of this. The famine is going to come. This is all we've got left. There's no more flour coming. There's no water coming. And so what we've got is what we've got. And once we eat it, we're going to eat it and die. So no, I really can't give you anything. Verse 13, though Elijah said to her, go and do not fear, do as you have said, but first make me a little cake and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. Verse 14, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Notice every time we have an instance of something happening in the story, that's how God is going to be identified. The Lord, the God of Israel. And remember when you see capital L-O-R-D, while it says Lord in English, that is the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh, that his covenant name, Yahweh, his proper covenant name, Yahweh. And so Elijah says, I want you to know something. The miracle that is about to be performed is not by Baal or some other false god. The miracle that is about to be performed comes as a word from Yahweh. Who is Yahweh? The God of Israel. The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according, there it is again, to the word of Yahweh that he spoke by Elijah. So we see God's providing, not just for Elijah with the ravens and the bread and the meat and the water, but now for this widow and her household and Elijah, miraculously, it seems, multiplying the flour and the oil so that it doesn't run out. The promise is, until the day it rains in Israel. So God has promised to provide for Elijah and this household until he causes it to rain once more. In verses 17 through 24, I think you might know this story too, another tragedy happens in that the widow's son dies. Elijah happens to be staying there, and that's pretty good, right? You've got the prophet of God staying there in your house. Your son dies. She goes and gets him. He says in verse 19, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms, the dead body, carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And then he cried to Yahweh, oh Yahweh, my God, 
Have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by, sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, Yahweh, my God, let this child's life come to him. The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And look how the woman responds in verse 24. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord Yahweh in your mouth is truth. And so God providing for Elijah and this widow and her family, God showing his power through Elijah to this family, is a witness to this Gentile family. I don't know what gods they worshipped. They might have had an altar right there in their own little house where they sacrificed to Baal or some false god. But now she knows because she's seen the provision of Yahweh, the God of Israel, I know that your God is the one true God, and I know that you are his prophet, and because you're his prophet, the words from your mouth are truth. And so God shows his provision, he shows his power through Elijah to this Gentile woman in her household. So the other question is, why, why do you think God is doing this um, to Elijah? Why did God put Elijah through this? If you know the story that's about to come, you know Elijah's going to need some confidence. Elijah's going to need trust in God. Elijah's going to need to go into this next scene, the next episode, the next story, with confidence, with trust in God. God was using this to prepare Elijah for what was to come, proving himself to be the provider for Elijah and proving himself to be the power that Elijah needed. So God wasn't just teaching the widow and her son something. No, that happened, and she saw the truth and understood who the true God was. But he was showing Elijah something. Elijah, in this season of loneliness, in this season of despair, the drought had even affected him, and it seemed like this family was going to die, and Elijah with them, presumably, yet God provided for them. Yet God showed his power to them. And so God was using this time of need and desperation and uncertainty to prove his provision and his power, not just for their sake, but for Elijah's sake. How often do we need that reminder? And how often is it, a, is it, is it so easy for us to forget God's power and to forget God's provision in our own lives, in the lives of our families, when things are going great? And how God can use times of need and uncertainty. And how God can use times of trial and suffering and pain to show himself to you. And to show himself to your family through provision, through his power. And how God uses that to prepare us for what's next in our lives. To use us mightily. Or to just increase our trust and our faith in him. God uses those things and he did so for Elijah. In chapter 18, this is probably the most famous story, I would say, in all of First and Second Kings, and that is the contest on Mount Carmel. When I was little, I thought they were saying like caramel, like the candy. And so I just, when I was little, because I said caramel for the candy, I just decided I'm going to say Mount Carmel. They sound like something in Candyland, but it's not that at all. It's, it's Mount Carmel, no extra A in there as the candy. Elijah is called to confront Ahab and the Baal worship of Israel. Elijah is called to confront Ahab and the Baal worship of Israel. Um, in verse 5 of chapter 18, we see Ahab and his servant Obadiah, uh, not the prophet Obadiah, but um, another godly, God-fearing man named Obadiah, who it uh, seems in verses 3 and 4, disliked the worship of Baal, disagreed with Ahab, and had even hidden prophets of the Lord in caves and was feeding them. So he was a God-fearing man, 
God-worshipping man. Nevertheless, he was the assistant of Ahab. And in verse 5 of chapter 18, Ahab and this assistant Obadiah, it says, verse 5, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went one direction himself, and Obadiah went in the other direction by himself to find water. Because the drought by this time was affecting all of Israel up to the king and his animals himself. Verse 4, we see that Obadiah was hiding these prophets. And why would he be hiding the prophets except that someone was trying to hurt the prophets? And presumably in the story, it's Ahab, or it seems like later maybe his wife Jezebel, who was trying to hunt down the prophets of God and kill them. And so Obadiah is hiding them. So it seems, and we see this later, I'll tell you why we see this, Ahab blamed the prophets of the Lord. Why have you caused this? As if he were to say to them. And so they're running, they're hiding. Obadiah is trying to hide them and care for them. Uh, Ahab blamed them for the drought that was in Israel, the most notorious of which was Elijah. Interesting little story in verses 17 through 16. Uh, Obadiah and Elijah happen to meet by the sovereign providence of the Lord. He brings them together. And Elijah tells Obadiah, you go tell your Lord, King Ahab, that I'm here and I want him to come see me. Now, Obadiah doesn't know what to think of this because Elijah's kind of been in and out of the picture. You were here one minute and then you were gone. And so how do I know you're not just going to disappear again? How do I know I'm not going to go tell Ahab, hey, Elijah's here to see you, and he's going to come thinking he's got you, you're going to be gone, and then he's going to kill me. And so Obadiah does not want to go tell Ahab that Elijah's here, but Elijah gives him his promise. Uh, Verse 14, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. And so Obadiah goes, tells Ahab that Elijah's here, go meet him. Verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? This this seems to indicate what Ahab thought about the prophets of God. You are the troublers. You're the problem. It's your fault. What's wrong with you? So the way Ahab viewed this situation was that the prophets were the problem. The prophets of the Lord were the problem. The truth was the problem. They're the troublers of Israel, and Elijah is the chief troubler of Israel. And what does Elijah say in response in verse 18? Elijah answers, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of Yahweh and followed the Baals. That includes Baal plus any other false gods uh, they might have worshipped, including Asherah. We'll see that in just a second. So Ahab's view was, you prophets are the problem, you're the troublers. But of course, the truth, Elijah's point of view was, no, you're the problem with your idolatry and your Baal worship. How often do we see that same thing sort of in our nation and in our world? If you Christians would just be quiet, if you get out of the way, if you take your morality and your Bible and your God and your religion and just get that out of everything, then we'd all be happy, right? We could make laws that suit us and pass things that suit us. How often, though, have we seen those laws and we've seen those acts passed outside of the law of God and outside of the morality of the Bible? And how often do we see those bring death and chaos and confusion and more sin and more wickedness and more evil? And that's exactly what's going on here. Ahab sees this Elijah, this prophet of God, and says, you're the trouble. You're the troublemaker. Elijah says, no, you're the troublemaker because of your false worship. The truth will always be against what the world thinks. Jesus said, uh, you know, if the world hated me, it will also hate you. Don't think that I've come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword, Jesus said, to divide families let alone friends and workplaces and schools and nations in the world. I've come to pit people against each other, truth against error, light against darkness, and those two will not mix. And we see that pictured here in the, the ministry of Elijah as he's pictured as this troublemaker, although he knows exactly where the trouble's coming from. 
Elijah in verse 19 challenges the prophets of Baal and Asherah to a contest. Now I want you to see the picture here. This is one prophet of God. A hundred more prophets are off hiding in caves somewhere by Obadiah. Here's one prophet of God, Elijah, against 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. Also, notice verse 19, they eat at Jezebel's table. These are the, this is the in crowd. These are the ones to watch out for. There's just one of me, 950 of them, 850, math, you know, 850 of them, uh, and you get the picture. This is overwhelming. This is the king and the queen of Israel. They're 850 prophets versus one poor beggar that just rolled out of the wilderness. Okay, the picture here is being painted for us for what's about to happen because this contest will prove who is the real God. Is it Yahweh or is it Baal? I remember Elijah's name, Elijah. God is the Lord or the Lord is God. As you go through this story, we'll go through a few verses here. You'll see some details, and I think those details are important because those details uh, really go with the message of this entire passage. Look in verse 27. And you know the contest, right? They, they, they get called to Mount Carmel, and you get your prophets on your side, 850 of you, and you all put up a, an altar to Baal. Kill an ox and put it on there, and then I'll go over here and I'll build an altar to Yahweh. I'll kill a bull or an ox and put it on there, and then we'll call down fire from our respective gods, Baal and the Asherah, and then you, we'll, I'll call on Yahweh to answer in fire, and whichever God answers in fire, that's the true God. That's pretty fair, right? You do your thing, we'll do our thing, we'll see who answers. 850 to 1. One altar, one bull, one altar, one bull. We'll see which one is the real God. But in the middle of this, there are some fun details. Verse 27, um, Elijah sees these false prophets leaping and running about and taking off their clothes and cutting themselves. And in verse 27, at noon, Elijah mocked them. So they've been going at this for a few hours. They've been calling out to Baal, Praying and praying and praying and, and whipping themselves up into a frenzy and being naked and cutting themselves and beating themselves. In verse 27, they've been going at it for a little while. Elijah says, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself or he is on a journey or for, perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. You see Elijah mocking the people, uh, these false prophets and their false God. Maybe he's away. Maybe he's using the bathroom. Maybe he's taking rest. Maybe he's sleeping. I mean, this is what he's saying. You can see it across the lawn there as Elijah's mocking them. And this isn't just mocking for mockery's sake. It's making a point. Where is your God? Doesn't he hear you? Can't he see what you're doing for him? Why won't he answer you? Is making that point. He can't answer you. He's not there. He's not a real God at all. Uh, some of the other fun uh, details, verse 28 through 29. They cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom, seems like something they do often, with swords and lances until the, blush, the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation. But there was no voice. Listen to that. No voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And if you're reading that in Hebrew, we have a, a couple words to say that, that thing. I, I, th I think it's only like two words apiece in Hebrew, and it has this rhythm to it. No voice, no answer, no one paying attention. That, that, that's, the, that's the period at the end of their worship. At the end of them cutting themselves and leaping about like fools and going on for hours upon hours upon hours, calling out to their false god, at the end of it, what did they have to show for it? No one answered. No one heard. No one cared. Elijah, though, begins to pray. He says in verse 30, Come near to me to all the people of Israel. And he, he kind of challenges them what happened to the way you were walking, the old paths that you were walking. Now you're, you're worshiping these false gods. And how long, Elijah asks, how long will you, literally, how long will you leap between the two options? 
Either you'll, you'll, you'll serve the Lord or, you're, or, you're, good grief, or you will serve Baal. Choose which God you're going to serve. And uh, in verses 33 through 40, He put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Now, if you're going to build a fire and you want fire to come down and consume the sacrifice, uh, you don't go out and pour water on your firewood. When I'm trying to start my grill, use charcoal, you know, and I try to keep it under the awning so rain doesn't get on my bag of charcoal. And if I go outside and the charcoal's damp, I can light all the fires underneath that I want to. It's not going to light. It might smolder a little bit, but it's not going to light. And so Elijah says, I want you to go do this. I want you to pour water on it. Not once, not twice, but three times they pour water on the altar and on the ox. Till verse 35, the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. So these details we see here, the extent of their worship, their lunacy, their raving, they're cutting themselves, they're naked, they're dancing around hours and hours and hours. And then Elijah begins to mock them. Maybe your God's sleeping, maybe he's away, maybe he's taking a journey. And also, while we're at it, let's go ahead and pour water once, twice, and three times on my altar to the point where it's overflowing the altar and filling a trench that we've dug around the altar. Nevertheless, in verse 35, verse 36, at the time of the offering of the oblation, that's the evening offering, by the way, the evening sacrifice, probably around three in the afternoon. Elijah, the prophet, came near and said, watch this one sentence, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that's Jacob, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, you, O Yahweh, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Verse 38, seemingly before he even ends his prayer, the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. You see the rhythm? It's important. And the, and the bull and the altar and the dust and the water. The fire came and consumed all of it. So before Elijah really even finishes his prayer, not hours and hours, he's not leaping around like a crazy person, he's not cutting himself, he's not taking off his clothes, he doesn't even pray all that long, and yet God answers in fire. The fire falls, and there is no doubt that Yahweh is God. Verse uh, 39, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and look, they exclaimed twice, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. And then Elijah commands all the false prophets. Think about that. It says just Baal, but I would assume this means all the false prophets, 850 of them, and they're slaughtered. They're put to death. It says here at the end of, uh, where's that verse? It's interesting. Oh, yeah, sorry. Verse 40, into verse 40, they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Uh, Elijah did it himself, it seems like. Uh, there was no one to save them. There was no one to save them. And doesn't that, isn't that a fitting end to the story? They're calling out to their God all day, no answer. Maybe he's sleeping, maybe he's away. And here, in their greatest hour of need, he doesn't answer. Yahweh answers. Not only does Yahweh answer in fire, but now they're slaughtered. And the question is, where is your God? And at the end of it all, their God is nowhere because their God does not exist. There is no one to save them. In verses 41 through 45, God puts, puts an exclamation point on this story. In verse 41, Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink. For there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the Mount, Car Mount Carmel and bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. He said, Go again. Seven times he goes. And the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up and say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. 
And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So what's the exclamation point that God puts on this story? He sends rain. Now, there's no indication that Ahab repented. It seems that a large number of Israel repented. The Lord, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. All the false prophets are slaughtered down in the, the brook Kishon. And then, to top it all off, God sends rain. Proving, not only will I bring fire down from heaven, but I bring rain down from heaven like your God, Baal, could never do. And so God finishes this story, not just with fire, but with rain. The next chapter kind of matches what we saw in the previous story. In the previous story, God raises up Elijah. You're going to go and cause this drought. Remember, authority and power. And what does he do? God calls him to run. (laughs) Go hide. Similar thing happens at the beginning of chapter 19 with some big differences. We see Jezebel, Queen Jezebel, Ahab's wife, the one who's brought in all this Baal worship via her husband, Ahab told Jezebel, verse 1, all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Jezebel is threatening Elijah's life. Just like you slaughtered my prophets, may my life also be taken if I don't do the same to you. So Jezebel doesn't turn to the Lord. Ahab, seemingly just a weak puppet in all of this, doesn't turn to the Lord. And they go after Elijah. And in verse 3, we see Elijah on the run yet again. God caused him to be raised up, said, go and cause this drought, but then go hide. And now we have this mighty picture with the fire coming down out of heaven and rain coming down. And Elijah is seen as the, the man of God, the prophet, the holy one that he is. But now he goes on the run again, verse 3. I want you to notice a big difference, though. Elijah was afraid, verse 3, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Remember earlier when Elijah was called to bring the drought, what was the one detail that I showed you a couple times there when Elijah was called to go into the wilderness and east of Jordan? Why did he go there? Because what? The word of the Lord told him to go there. We see that missing in verse 3, don't we? There's no word of the Lord that comes and tells Elijah to flee, only that he was afraid, and he ran to Beersheba. Elijah runs for his life into the wilderness, Verse 4, it goes a step further. He even begs the Lord now in his fear. He begs the Lord to take his life. Verse 4, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, circle wilderness, underline it, whatever. Came down and sat under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. I don't know what Elijah expected to happen as a result of what happened on Carmel. The people, some of them seemingly repented. God sent fire down from heaven. He sent rain. Ahab didn't repent. Jezebel didn't repent. And it seems that Elijah was back where he was in the first place, running away from this wicked king and this wicked queen, running for his life, trying to take care of himself these expectations that Elijah must have had did not go as planned. There was no massive national revival, no massive call for repentance on the part of Ahab and Jezebel. No, they just doubled down on what they were doing before. Seems like they go on worshiping the false gods, and now they continue this persecution of the prophets, including Elijah. And so what does Elijah do? In his fear, he runs away. And in his fear, he whines and complains to God and says, Oh God, just take my life, because I'm no better off than my father's. This is no better off than where we were before. You kind of hear a little bit of the echoes of Israel in the wilderness, don't you? 
And I think that's a picture. Wilderness, they're there, running from a wicked king who's after them. And what do they say as they come to the Red Sea? Oh, that we were back in Egypt. And what do they say when they get hungry? Oh, that we were back in Egypt. There was food there and there was water there. And you hear Elijah almost complaining in the same way. Grumbling is the word, murmuring. Oh, God, take my life now. It's better that I just die because we're no better off than we were before. Just take my life. How do we respond so often when things do not go as planned Things do not match our expectations in life. And God just does this mighty thing. Uh, you know, one of the things I thought about recently was September 11th. And after September 11th, this, you know, massive revival in, in churches. And then churches were just packed the Sunday after. And, I mean, churches were probably, you know, burgeoning at the seams with people coming in, trying to find God, trying to find hope, trying to find peace. What happened the next Sunday? Back to normal. What expectations people must have had, pastors must have had. Man, God is going to use this. God is going to use this to save thousands and thousands. And he surely did in some ways. God is going to pack our churches out because of this tragedy. And then the week after, we're back to normal, back to the normal crowd. And everybody seemingly forgot about God because they got a little bit of comfort, a little bit of time, a little bit of distance to ease everybody's nerves, ease the anxiety. And then, of course, we don't need God anymore once we have the peace that we need. Uh, one theologian, I think it might have been Aquinas, said that uh, you know, people don't really seek for God. People seek after the benefits of God. So people are looking for peace. People are looking for joy. People are looking for happiness. But people aren't looking for God. They want the benefits of God, but they don't want God himself until he changes their heart by the Holy Spirit. So whatever Elijah expected to happen, this massive national revival, a massive turning back to Yahweh, and Ahab's going to go tear down the temples and tear down the altars to Baal and point everybody back to Jerusalem, didn't happen. And so Elijah is in despair. He's hopeless. And I think we see a picture of how we often respond when things do not go the way we think they ought to in our lives, in our families' lives, in our national lives. I mean, hello, you know, elections come and go. And man, we got this thing, whatever side of the aisle you're on, your guy's in office, we got four years of this guy, and then, he, and then you have both sides of Congress maybe, you have the, con- the House Representatives, the Senate, that's your party, whatever your party is, I'm not going to assume, and you go on four years, man, we really got this, we're on a roll, and then the next election comes, gone. Now how many Christians... No matter which side you're on, no matter which election I'm talking about, <laughs> how many Christians say, oh, what are we going to do now? What are we going to do now? It's all, all hope is lost. Our nation's in the tank. We're, gonna, we're, we're done for. How often we respond that same way that Elijah responded in Acts 19, or Acts, 1 Kings 19. Um, how did God speak to Elijah here as we look further in the, uh, in the text? Elijah, in verse 9, comes to a cave and lodged in it. Uh, uh, Worth noting in verse 8, it's Horeb, the Mount of God. We'll come to that in a minute. And as he's there hiding in this cave, the word of the Lord, verse 9, came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So he's running, he's hiding, God comes looking for him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah has this pre-prepared speech. How do I know it's pre-prepared? Because he says the exact same thing a few verses later, in the same order, in the same way. I, even I, only am left, God... I'm the only one left, and I've been so jealous for you, and nothing's changed. And so God speaks to Elijah. He appears first, maybe we think, in a mighty wind, and it comes and it tears the mountain apart in uh, verse 11. And at the end of verse 11, there's an earthquake, and then in verse 12, there's a fire. And every time it happens, Elijah thinks, man, this is the Lord. After all, he appeared in the fire there on the altar at Carmel. He came down in the rain. He proved himself there. Maybe the wind, the strong, mighty wind that tore the mountain apart. Maybe that's the Lord. Maybe the fire is the Lord. Maybe the earthquake is the Lord. But none of them 
were the Lord. In fact, after every single one, it says, but the Lord was not in the wind. Verse 11, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. Verse 12, but the Lord was not in the fire. But what happens then? But there was the sound of a low whisper. My footnote says the the sound found the sound of a thin silence. Your version might say the classic. There was a still small voice. God didn't speak to Elijah in the wind. He didn't speak to Elijah in the earthquake. He didn't speak to Elijah in the fire. He spoke to Elijah in a whisper. How often do we, we beg God to speak to us when there's whole denominations and churches that are, that are built on this, this idea that God communes with us in these tangible, often sensational ways. Signs, wonders, miracles, some gifts of the Spirit, and, and some movements and some Christians depend on those things as if those big things are the Lord. Now, we talked about this back in May with our gifts of the Spirit, tongues, prophecy, and whatnot. You know, I think you know where I stand on it by now. Uh, if you don't, go listen to that podcast, or maybe you don't know where I stand on it, and that's a good thing. But people expect God to talk in these big, sensational ways that are signs and wonders and miracles, and there's going to be no doubt that that's the Lord when this happens or when this sign shows up or when this gift shows up. And oftentimes God says, I don't want to speak in the wind. I don't want to speak in the earthquake. I don't always have to speak in the fire. It doesn't always have to be this big, sensational thing. Oftentimes, oftentimes God speaks to us in that low whisper. As you read his word, as you pray and listen for his spirit, it's not always going to be earth-shattering stuff that happens when God speaks. In fact, God is going to speak more often than not as you sit with your Bible by yourself or sit in your car praying or in tears of sorrow and affliction and pain. And he's not appearing in all the big ways, but he ministers to you by the power of his Holy Spirit through a still, small voice. Elijah speaks, or God speaks to Elijah in this way here. I think the point was to call Elijah to listen. Yes, Elijah, I've called you to cause droughts. You, with, you have withheld rain, and you have brought the rain. Yes, Elijah, I've used you to call fire down from heaven. But now I want you, Elijah, just to sit and listen for a minute. No signs, no wonders, no, no wind, no fire, no earthquake. Just my voice, Elijah, just listen. Because Elijah thought he was alone verse 10 he had that prepared speech right i even i only am left he says the same thing in verse 14 i even i only am left but then we get to the end of near the end of this chapter in verse 18 god says yet i will leave seven thousand in israel all the knees that have not bowed to baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah, you're not alone. There's a hundred more prophets in a cave hiding, and besides that, there's 7,000 Israelites who have not compromised and worshipped Baal. You're not alone. How important was it for Elijah to know that and to remember that? How important is, is it for us to remember that? In, in the seasons of our life, pain, trial, suffering, sorrow, circumstances in life that don't go as we planned, when, the, when our expectations don't work out the way we thought they should, to remember that we're not alone, that God has called us and he saved us not just by ourselves, but he's called us to be part of a body, a family, a church, an assembly. We're not alone. How, how, how important is it for us to remember as Christians as First Baptist Church Dumas, that we're not the only light of the gospel in Dumas, Texas. That there are other churches who might worship differently from us, who might believe some secondary and tertiary or lower issues differently from us, but preach the same Jesus and preach the same gospel. 
let alone in our county and our state and our nation and the world. You see, we look at the headlines and we see numbers of Christians decreasing in America and we see churches and denominational numbers decreasing in America and we are, we're, we're tempted like Elijah to say, oh no, what, what's happened to the Bible Belt? What's happened to America? It's never gonna be like it was. Oh Lord, what are you gonna do? When you pay attention how much the Lord is moving in what we call the global south, South America, Asia, India, China, the Middle East, Africa. You think about what happened recently in the United Methodist Church, mainline denomination in the United States, that had been drifting to the left for so long and was practically accepting same-sex marriage and performing same-sex marriages and ordainingly, ordaining openly homosexual priests, and, or not priests, pastors, except for a large contingency of United Methodists in Asia and Africa who rose up and said, stop, we're not going to stand for this anymore. Now you think about how God really, I mean, in a national conference of the United Methodist Church, used those Christians from Africa and Asia to outvote the liberal Christians there in the United Methodist Church in America. And so we might be tempted to say, oh, Lord, what's happening in America? What's happened to Christianity? What happened to the church? What happened to the Bible Belt when God's just moving it somewhere else? And we're going to, hey, this is great when you hear other nations sending missionaries to the United States. And you see God at work. We're not alone in this. God still has a church, and God is still on the move in the world. I want to move to this last section pretty quick, so uh, be ready to fill in those blanks. What's it all about? What is the whole story about? What does it have to do with Jesus? What does it have to do with me? The message of 1 Kings 17 through 19 is that Yahweh is the only true God. If you don't take anything else away from tonight, that's, that, that is the lesson. Yahweh is the only one true and living God. As such, Yahweh alone holds the power of nature, the rain, storms, the fire, Yahweh alone has the power of life. We saw that in the restoration of the widow's son. Yahweh, as the king and creator of all things, is the only one to be worshipped. And you can spell worship with one P or two P's, however you choose. I like two P's, it looks better, but I think both are correct. We come to the end of the story, and uh, we just happen to see Elijah at Mount Horeb. It, it is called the Mountain of God here, but we might not understand why it's called the Mountain of God. Horeb is just another name of Sinai, the Mountain of God. And you remember Sinai? That's where God appeared on the mountain, called Moses up into the cloud, and gave him the Ten Commandments. His glory appeared there. Remember Leviticus? Uh, God's glory appearing there on Mount Sinai and how Moses goes up 40 days, 40 nights and comes back down uh, shining, his face shining with the glory of God. Both Moses and Elijah stood in a cleft as God's glory passed by. You remember the story of Moses? He prayed, O Lord, show me your glory. God knows what happens when men see his, his glory. They die. <laughs> and so he puts Moses in a cleft of a rock, a cave, covers him, and Moses beholds the glory of the Lord as it passes by. He, ca he catches a glimpse as it passes by. And even that little glimpse is enough to make his face radiate with the glory of God, so much that when he comes down from the mountain, the people can't look at him, and they have to build this little curtain to put in front of his face because they're afraid of him just seeing the backside of God's glory. What happened to Elijah there in the wilderness? He's there in the wilderness, hiding in a cave on Sinai. God's glory passes by. Not in the fire, not in the wind, not in the earthquake, but that still small voice as God speaks to Elijah in that way. Moses and Elijah both have experience in the wilderness, lasting 40 days and 40 nights. Interesting numbers. 40 days, 40 nights. Moses is up on Mount Sinai, 40 days, 40 nights. Elijah's here in the wilderness, up on the mountain, 40 days, 40 nights. God's glory um, there, as we saw on Mount Carmel, was revealed as fire consumed a sacrifice at the evening offering. Two times, the author lets us know that it was the time of the evening oblation. 
the, the time of the evening sacrifice. And that could have been anywhere from 3 p.m. onward for the evening sacrifice of the temple. It was that time when God's fire fell on the altar there for Elijah, the evening sacrifice. Now let's fast forward to the New Testament and let's remember who our true prophet is. Jesus, our prophet, our priest, and our king. God sent the true prophet, Jesus Christ. He's more than a prophet, but he's not less than a prophet. He is the prophet of God because he is the very word of God. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. So when God chose to reveal himself to us, he sent nothing less than his word made flesh in the Lord Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, long, long ago, many times, many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He's spoken to us through the true word, the true prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ, who just so happens to have had his own experience in the wilderness, 40 days, 40 nights. You can read about it in those first three, what we call the synoptic gospels, the temptation of Christ in the wilderness, 40 days, 40 nights fasting there in the wilderness. There's a difference, though, in the story of Jesus. Moses goes up on the mountain 40 days, 40 nights, comes back down. Israel, we know, massive failure, <laughs> really overall, and that's what First and Second Kings is proving to us. Uh, up on the mountain, 40 days, 40 nights, doesn't make a difference. They're sinners, they fall, they fail. Even the prophets fall and fail. Moses failed, Elijah failed, every king after them failed and failed and failed and failed. But where these uh, nation of Israel and the prophets failed and these kings failed Jesus is victorious because in his 40 days and 40 nights he comes out the other end victorious over Satan having resisted the temptation and Satan flees from him not he from Satan as Elijah fled Jezebel where Israel and the prophets failed Jesus is victorious more importantly Jesus is the very glory of God. The word that was with God and the word was God, verse 14, John 1, the word became flesh and we beheld his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Elijah heard the still small voice. Moses saw the great cloud of God's glory. But we see something fuller and something bigger in the coming of the Lord Jesus who is the very glory of and presence of God with his people. Lastly, the fire of God's wrath falls on Jesus during the evening offering. Think about that. Two times in the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, the, it's, it's pointed out that it's the time of the evening offering, around 3 p.m. If you remember your stories from the Gospels, you can go look them up here, the Synoptic Gospels. They, 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 for some reason, find the need to tell us what time Jesus was on the cross. And it's nevertheless around that ninth hour, when is that? About 3 p.m., when Jesus dies and says, it is finished. The fire of God's wrath falls on Jesus during that evening offering. But that's not the end of the story. Fifty days after he rose from the dead... After 10 days after his ascension, the disciples are in the upper room praying, waiting. And what happens? There's a sound from heaven like a mighty rushing wind and tongues of fire set on each one of them and God's fire fell on them. So Jesus absorbs the fire of God's wrath at the time of the evening offering so that God's fire might fall on us to be living sacrifices. Isn't that what Paul says? Because of the mercies of God, I beseech you, not bulls on altars somewhere in a temple, you be living sacrifices for God. Consumed with the fire of God, not some physical fire, but the fire of God's spirit as he dwells in you and fills you and causes you to walk in the truth. So as you go through these stories, uh, you know, look for those patterns. We've been talking a lot in, in staff lately, and Barbara might, no, we've been talking, and Lynette, we might have been talking, we've been talking about um, the problems that you can fall into when you start seeing numbers and codes and secret passages and things everywhere in the Bible. 
be careful not to go down that road too many times. That, you know, four doesn't always mean this, and three doesn't always mean that, and seven doesn't always mean something. But when the biblical authors do it for you, you can believe there's something there. When Moses is there on the mountain of God, 40 days, 40 nights, wilderness. Elijah, 40 days, 40 nights, wilderness. Jesus, wilderness, 40 days. You can say, okay, I don't have to do the numerology thing to see that there's a pattern here, that the author is trying to show me something. So again, even as you're going through books like First and Second Kings, and it feels like, man, I don't know where Jesus is in this, and I don't know where I am in this, look for those patterns, look for those types, look for those pictures, and see how God is weaving the gospel through every single page of the Bible. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for the good news that sets sinners free, that we who were idolaters, we who were factories of idols in our own minds, uh, you have saved by sending your Holy Spirit to us. You have saved by dying for us and taking the fire of God's wrath on yourself so that we might have the fire of your presence inside of us by your Holy Spirit. God, uh, give us clean hands and pure hearts cleanse us from all of our idolatry and all of our sin. Help us to follow after Jesus day after day by the power of your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806 935 5604. We'll see you next time.